Hello and welcome. This is Anela Nerguri of Carrick Conservation, and welcome to our new series, In Conversations. In the last while, we have been further developing our portfolio in building conservation, energy efficiency, and research, and we aim to develop knowledge in the area of building conservation and climate change. And there have been many summits and conferences which discuss this, and I myself have attended many meetings where experts from different fields discuss the issue, often thinking that these discussions should be recorded. Well, that is exactly what Peter Cox, our managing director at Carrick Conservation, has done for this episode. Peter caught up with Carl Elefante. He was the principal emeritus of Quinn Evans as a design principal on architecture, historic preservation and community revitalization projects. But I think most people will know Carl Elefante from the famous phrase, the greenest building is one that is already built. In part one, this episode, they discuss where the phrase came from, sustainable retrofit and the issues around that, and maladaptation. So here is the discussion and conversation between Peter Cox and Carl Elefante. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Carrig's new series of podcasts. Today, I am delighted to be in the company of a great colleague, a good friend, and eminent architect, Carl Elefante of Washington, D.C. Carl, can you give a short introduction of yourself, please? Thanks, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, so my background, uh, people sometimes are a little surprised to hear it's not in historic preservation. It's actually really more in green architecture. And I came to historic preservation pretty late in my career. I had just an incredible opportunity to spend a couple of years uh, in the early years of the Clinton administration working on the President's Council on Sustainable Development. And when I came away from that uh, feeling that I just needed to take my architectural uh, career in a different direction. And as I searched for that direction, the most powerful conversation I had was with a man by the name of Michael Quinn of Quinn Evans Architects. And he told me about his work in historic preservation as a steward of the cultural and built heritage. And I talked about my interest as a steward of the natural environment and sustainable communities. And we came away from that saying, you know what? This is an interesting topic. We need to work on this together. And within about a year or so, we I literally went and started working with Quinn Evans. And since then, I've been on a mission to really bring these worlds of sustainable design and historic preservation together. You're probably now most famous for coining a, a, a phrase which is now well known and accepted actually around the world, I think. It's certainly used a lot here in Europe. And that is the greenest building is the one that already exists. Can you give us a short explanation of how that came about? So when I say it, I say the greenest building is one that is already built. And I emphasize the built because in, in essence, that's really uh, you know, where the value comes from. We've already invested in it being here. But the, the, the story of this origin really goes to a conference that I did that I was invited to participate in by Andrew Potts. 
we all knew Andrew Poss from his work at ICOMOS and as a founder of the Climate Heritage Network. It was a historic tax credit training program. And uh, I was there to talk about sustainable stewardship, this uh, you know emerging thing that we were working on. And this was three days of lawyers and accountants talking about the fineries of historic tax credits. And by the time I finally was up, I decided that I needed to wake the room up a little bit. So I decided that I would have a call and response chant with 300 lawyers and accountants. Okay. So I, so I would say the greenest building is, and I would, and they would respond by saying one that is already built. And I actually did that, believe it or not, with this room full of lawyers and accountants and it worked. And I just thought, well, that's it. it this is a keeper. That's amazing. And yes, to get accountants and lawyers to to buy into it is phenomenal. But at least it, it's now been exercised in the right way that we're now using it in our in our general day to day. Carl, you, you've played a big role in recent years in the AIA, which is the American Institute of Architects. Uh, or architecture, and particularly helping to drive for the adaptive reuse of our existing buildings. Can you give us a short synopsis of the AIA's philosophy on this sector? Sure, and and I'll do that literally wearing my AIA president hat for a minute and talk about the importance of this uh, to the profession. So for you and me, we understand that you know after the Second World War there was this enormous explosion of the modern era city and they, they cropped up all around the world by the thousands, and so for us here today, seventy years later, that explosion of modern era construction means that we have a building stock that is huge and very much in need of work. More than 50% of it is over 40 years old. And that's even in the most modern places. And so from the perspective of architects and what work are we going to do anyhow, this is a tremendous, you know, just challenge for us to either take care of those aging buildings that need substantial reinvestment or what? What's the alternative? Tear them all down? And, you know, in the age of climate change, this is extremely important that we continue to get benefit out of the building stock that was in the U.S., you know, largely created uh, since 1945. And we're finding the same here. And I was involved in a a recent Central European Standards Committee writing new guidelines for energy efficiency in in our heritage and traditional buildings. And when we did the research in the 28 countries of Europe, there were 66 million dwellings that are pre-1945. And it represents about 34% of the built environment in Europe. And, and all these buildings need some care and attention and adaptive reuse. Further to that, we met Carl a number of years ago uh, through also a number of organizations, mainly the APT, Association for Preservation Technology, uh, the ZNCC, Zero Net Carbon Collaborative. 
And we're both very active in the Climate Heritage Network, which you mentioned earlier with Andrew. More recently, we were lucky to spend some real time together at COP26 in Glasgow, and we both want to promote sustainable energy retrofit of our existing buildings and low-carbon solutions to the energy retrofit programme. But we should also surely be promoting low-carbon solutions to the whole construction industry. How do we start that process in your mind, coming from the architectural background and get our message across? Well, that's a great question, and it's a very important question. My own two cents worth on this is that I I think it's really important for us to get retrofit right so that we can really show that we know how to optimize the existing building stock and, and really make a convincing case for our knowledge base. And I think we're only doing a good job on part of that today. There are just a huge number of unoccupied abandoned buildings. There are just huge numbers of partially occupied buildings. I think we have to look beyond the technical fixed dimension of this and really get involved with what is needed to make our communities viable again and really show how, uh, you know, building reuse can, you know, transform those communities. I think it's also important for us to be able to demonstrate how to transform the existing buildings to really set an example for the viability of the existing building stock that that we're being you know stewards of and to really teach the lessons of of heritage buildings and i think here again we only do about half of what's really needed so it's not just being able to talk about the qualities that those buildings have but it's also understanding how those qualities can essentially be applied to the new circumstances that we face. How, how do we scale those lessons up to really be a viable part of the you know, climate action program that our, our communities and our nations and, our, in fact, our world needs? So I think that we're doing a very good job on only part of the job, and we have to get our brains around the larger uh, job that needs to be done and really address all dimensions of it. Thanks, Carl. I suppose the other threat, and it's it's very much along the thread that you just mentioned there, is maladaptation is a real problem, certainly over here in Europe, because what we found was an awful lot of governments um, after legislation was introduced in 2009 to reduce energy use within buildings. There was this race to give grants to people to upgrade their buildings. And what we found was it was kind of money-driven rather than knowledge-driven. And we ended up with mal, what we call maladaptation, where people were looking at the, the reducing of our operational energy consumption in our built environment whilst not seriously considering the embodied energy within our built heritage. Uh, are you seeing something similar in in the U.S.? Yes, I think we are. 
but I but I do think that it's somewhat conditioned on how different our building stock is. Uh, your your especially your housing stock is so much older than ours, and frankly, so much more substantial than ours that. In a lot of ways, the maladaptation in the U.S. is how can you maladapt something that's so terrible that pretty hard to figure out what to do with it. Our our housing stock is just terrible by comparison to the housing stock in the U.S. But that aside for a minute, you know, I do think that it comes back to this. What are the lessons of uh, traditional buildings? What are the what you know, and that it's imperative that we really do a good job of, of teaching those lessons. You know, I do know that we have in common, for example, an industry driven, frankly, knee jerk that the way to improve a building is to replace its windows. And that's just driven by uh, an industry of building replace, you know, window replacement industry that that's what they want to do. And whether it's a good idea or not doesn't really matter to them. We're replacing windows with technology that will last for centuries with technology that won't last for more than 20 or 30 years. And that's just not sustainable in the long run. If I can go on a little bit of a tangent here, insulated glass units, which are, you know, the panacea, they're the, the you know, the future. They're actually a building element with a terrible life cycle problem in that it, the assembly life cycle is no good. So, you know, you put this, all these materials together into an assembly. It has a weak link in the case of insulated glass windows. It's the sealants. When the sealants go, the whole assembly is no good. That assembly level life cycle assessment uh, problem is one that is endemic in many, many dimensions of modern era technical solutions in buildings. It, it just, we're wrong about it being sustainable technology. It's not. But I just wanted to also kind of switch lens to a, a somewhat more wide angle lens and to say the most important lesson that we have to teach is about long-term value. And this whole notion of investing very substantial quantities of embodied carbon, which is inevitable in buildings. I mean, even the most you know, embodied carbon efficient buildings are still enormously huge investments of material and energy and carbon resources. And that and that having them last for centuries needs to be the goal. That needs to be the understood method that relates to what we do with buildings and cities and the built environment. Performance metrics that matter are beyond energy efficient metrics and cultural expression cultural legacy. I mean, look at how fractured our societies are now. Uh, we're not putting nearly enough effort into creating cultural expression and cultural cohesion through what we do, the sort of art dimension to what we do, the representation of our culture and our society and what we do is just as important as all of these things that we're talking about in terms of carbon atoms, etc. Yes, um, absolutely agree. And this leads me to my next, um, well, if I, if I can have a bit of a rant, <laughs> NZEB, or Near Zero Energy Buildings, was a wonderful idea in the beginning, but it primarily promotes the reduction of operational energy. But we do not think that it is working, due, due mainly to two reasons. One, a lack of holistic approach, 
we may change a boiler from a fossil fuel to a heat pump or electric. But if we don't properly upgrade the fabric, we won't achieve the reduction in energy. And two, by using carbon intensive materials, such as um, you know polyurethanes or poly polystyrene insulations, the the retrofit we are we are actually going to increase the carbon footprint of that building, but also we're going to reduce um, the longevity of that building because we're introducing a moisture barrier, which is not going to allow that original or traditional building to breathe. Therefore, we are not going to meet any targets for reducing carbon if we don't do it correctly. So uh, you, you pressed a couple of hot buttons there, which I think are hugely important. I think one is this whole breathable building versus sealed building. I do not think that, again, we are uh, being told that the sealed building approach is absolutely a panacea. That is the right approach. I think there's a lot of question whether the science behind it really backs that up or not. And we are creatures that are breathable creatures. Our traditional building materials that have been used for tens of thousands of years are breathable materials. I'm very skeptical about the whole sealed building uh, paradigm, very skeptical about it. That said, there's two points that I want to make. One is that probably the number one most important positive takeaway that I got from COP26 was the use in the building industry about a term called whole life carbon accounting, WLCA. And that was the term being used to, to talk about this lack of holistic carbon and that we really need to be thinking holistically. So I was very happy to hear that. Whether we're getting there is another question, but just to simply say that that is the standard that we should be using, whole life carbon accounting. I was very happy to hear that. I just want to remind us, though, that there's two things that are external to what we do with your house or my house or any given building. Those two external things are, one, we have our buildings plugged into a grid. If that grid was clean, our world, our whole conversation would be very different. The second is that whatever we turn to, to intercede and to intervene and to retrofit or upgrade or replace our, the buildings that we have, uh, we're also doing that by tying into a construction and building products and materials system. And if that system was clean, our whole conversation would be different. So we are the two things that we have that we are interceding with, that we're that we're integrating what our solutions are part of are dirty systems. We can't do it alone. We need to depend on both a clean grid and a clean industrial system that we're part of. Again, that said, you know, we're trying to take it all on our own shoulders. I, I think that more power to us. Congratulations for being, you know, the responsible ones and the, and the aggressive ones trying to take it on. But we talked about maladaptation, et cetera. When Everything external that we reach to and pull into being part of our clean solution is dirty. There's a problem with that model. So we need to also be part of the voices uh, demanding 
a clean grid and demanding that our industry turn itself into a, a clean industry. Yes, thank you, Carl. Indeed it does, and it could send me off on a complete other tangent, which is environmental product declarations, which of course are not mandatory and they're not really accepted um, by industry. But that's, I, I think, another day's discussion. So for part one, we will leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. We hope that you got an insight into the key issues that we need to tackle within the built environment and where the possible solutions lie. In the next episode, Peter and Carl continue to talk about the problem of increased construction. So I would just talk about it in the following terms. Okay, we've got a problem, right? Well, we need an answer. What's our answer? Our answer is build.